I'm Adam, and this is Inside the Scale. Thanks to everyone who has been keeping up. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm actually at Redpoint Ventures in San Francisco's South Park. Redpoint is a venture capital firm where today's guest, Travis Bryant, is currently an entrepreneur in residence. Prior to that, Travis held sales leadership roles at both Salesforce and Optimizely. Within minutes of meeting Travis, I knew that we had to share his story. I admire him as someone that's been able to perfectly blend art and science in pursuit of perfection. I have a feeling that this will come across early in our conversation, so I'm excited to have you on the show, Travis. Let's start with your experience at Optimizely. For those that don't know, I'm sure a lot of people do, tell us what Optimizely does. Great, so Optimizely is now and has been for some time the most widely used experimentation service on the internet, meaning uh, it is used to run things as simple as A-B tests. You and I go to the New York Times at the exact same time. We might think we are looking at the exact same headline for the exact same article, but that headline in fact is different. And they are running a live experiment on us to figure out who ends up preferring one headline over the other. And uh, Optimizely is a technology that's used to run those sorts of experiments in real time. And that could be as simple as should the button be red or green, or it could be as sophisticated as engineers have built two search algorithms to look for products. We want to figure out in the, at the code level which one of those search algorithms is better. And we're going to use statistics and the scientific method to come to that answer, not guessing or uh, just throwing a dart and, and hoping. So it's interesting because I actually worked at Launch Darkly briefly. Yeah. And so I'm curious because I know that Optimizely always had that sort of marketing first approach. Right. Whereas Launch Darkly was all about very developer centric. You know, exactly. Yeah. How did you guys come up with that model? Yeah. Well, the the genesis of the idea was the founder Dan Soroker. He worked on the Obama campaign in 2008, and that election cycle was the first cycle where they had done any sort of new media, which was all the stuff that the old guard didn't understand it was not TV and radio. So it was was internet, Facebook, um, Google ads and so forth. And uh, Dan ended up running A-B tests for the Obama campaign. Really simple stuff like should it say donate or should it say volunteer on the call to action button? Right. What's the best picture on the landing page to get someone to give 20 bucks? And there'd be all this conventional wisdom uh, about that and Dan would run tests and say, no, actually the, pic the black and white picture of uh, Barack and Michelle and the girls outperforms the inspirational video by 40%. And so he, was, he could easily point to bottom line impact, but the tools that he was using were really, really difficult to use and you had to be a developer. So the, the idea was how do I build something that I wish I had on the Obama campaign and something that a quote mere marketing mortal could take advantage of because they have the idea of what the experiment should be. So that was the from the, the very first release of the product everything was visual point and click non-programmatic so that you could you could drop any page into the editor and visually change it to set up and execute the experiment. So the heritage was always that for the the business owner or um, 
uh, business department more than the tech technical department. Now what we found over time was the impact of experimentation, there's only so much you can do by changing the fonts or moving the button around or changing the color of it. What you want to be able to do is that really sophisticated work which lives at the logic and the data layers. And so that's what drove us down into the stack uh, and ultimately became what I think now is the primary product called Optimizely Full Stack. And so now you have the best of both worlds because you can do those visual experiments without having to get into the code. But then when you need to do things that are more sophisticated, there's a whole series of APIs that live on top of the statistics engine that is essentially this tool that says, send me a bunch of data and I'll tell you which, which one is the winner. Wow, okay. Yeah. And so what, how did you first start at Optimizely? What was the, how did you get introduced to the company? Yeah. How did everything start? Like a lot of these things, it's kismet or, or random. Uh, yeah. I, at the time, I had spent almost seven years at Salesforce and you know, before it was the 61 story office building and, and whatever, hundreds of billions of dollars of market cap. Easy to um, miss. What's that? Easy to miss. Yeah, yeah, the eye of Mordor <laughs> here in San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, but I was, I was in a, a number of first in sales engineering, so I had more of a technical background, and I was in that, that discipline, and then I moved into direct sales. And then my last role was I had built a team of uh, sales professionals focused on all of our technology and platform products. Given that I had a developer background, and that made more sense, we'd acquired a company called Heroku, and then we had Force.com, which was this declarative tool to build business applications. We had Heroku where you could write code. We had database.com. Salesforce is very good at buying domains. So they had database.com and site.com. Site.com was a website content management system. Yeah. And uh, as that part of the platform portfolio, uh, I had a chance to present on site.com at a Salesforce user conference in New York. And as part of that, they invited Dan to be on stage as one of the cool tools. Optimizely was this cool tool in 2011 that you could plug into site.com. So I met Dan about half an hour before we went on stage, and I ended up doing the demo of Optimizely, having only learned about the product 30 minutes before wow. we went on stage. And that's more a testament to the product than yeah. my demo capabilities. But um, Dan had said, hey, I'd love to just talk more with you, learn more about Salesforce and how it works. And, really nice, optimistic, fun guy. I said, sure. And it took us about a year, actually, after meeting to me to finally work up the nerve to, to join. <laughs> okay. uh, Dan called it the year-long courtship. But um, that's how it started. And then for me, I joined when we were about $7 million in run rate. There was 30 people in the company and uh, eight people in the sales organization. And I was the first VP hire brought in to build out the sales function. So it was this combination that was very intoxicating at the time of great product. You could clearly get fired up about it. And to me, that's one of the, um, the, the cardinal rules about being great at sales is you have to really understand why it's valuable, why people would benefit from it. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, then you're authentic about your energy when you're selling. And that, that everything flows from there for me. So product was the number one. Two was this market opportunity that when you could clearly articulate why someone who used Optimizely was going to run their business better because they were going to base decisions on stats and science, then anyone who had a website could be a potential customer for us. And then that expanded over time to anyone with a website, anyone with a mobile app, anyone with an Apple TV application, anyone with a kiosk in an airport, I mean, just anywhere there was a digital 
uh, there was code running, there's an opportunity to test that experience using Optimizely. So addressable market, there should be a lot of people who care about it. Um, so product, market, and then the third, and, and that ultimately was the thing that maybe took the longest because you really got to see the people that you're going to work with. Because mm -hmm. ultimately, you would shovel a lot of uh, dirt with people that you loved and respected and trusted and had fun with. Um, you do a lot of crappy jobs with those sorts of people. And you know that in this world of building companies from scratch, there's a lot of dirt to dig through and so you're gonna wanna have people that, that make you feel like that. And to me, that's actually the biggest driver of day-to-day -day satisfaction. And if you can get all three of those together, well then you're, then you're cooking with gas. And that was my feeling when I joined and uh, was turned out even beyond what I thought it was gonna be during that, that time of scale, for, especially in the first few years. Okay. Yeah. And so how did that kind of translate to your, your daily responsibilities and expectations? You know, what was the first thing that you did when you came in? Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, like a company with 30 people, uh, any sort of VP title is just wildly inflated. Okay. You know, like, That's fair. Uh, and you have to have some appreciation that it doesn't matter what your title is. There's work to be done. It doesn't even actually matter what domain or discipline or department you're in there's shit to do yeah. and you got to get in and, and do it um i had a couple of, of fun stories from that uh from that first period i think it was maybe maybe like the second week i had a sales rep on my team comes over to my desk and he drops this 35 page contract from 3m corporation on their paper which was called a consulting agreement and he said Hey man, usually I just sign these on my own, but since you're here now, I figure you probably want to take a look at it. <laughs> and I look at it, and it's you know clearly not language for buying a SaaS application. It's right. not our contract. We don't even have a contract. We have online terms of service. And I, I looked at him and I went, "How many of these have you signed? And can you pull them out of your desk, please?" Yeah. Because it was just that sort of fly by night mentality. Of course, that you have to to do when you're young and scrappy. Um, and we didn't have a lawyer on staff, and so then I suddenly became the lawyer, which was not necessarily where my expertise was. But that's the kind of, you gotta roll up your sleeves and, and figure it out. And where I think I, my mindset more naturally gravitates to is when there is some momentum, and now we gotta figure out how to repeat it in a methodical and thoughtful way. I'm not the idea creator per se, but then, when I came in Optimizely, we had already had a thousand customers who had at least swiped a credit card. We had a few AEs. We had a great leader who then became our leader for Europe. Uh, and they had built at least some momentum of this is how we think um, people are buying and using the tool. And now we got to figure out how to codify that and to uh, expand the number of people in the company and the number of customers so it's the the one to ten motion rather than the zero to one motion mm -hmm. and some of that frankly was being riding along on every deal when our primary account exec was out for a vacation was in doing demos and um, running the commission calculations in the Google spreadsheet creating new custom fields in Salesforce mm -hmm. you end up just you know, what needs to be done, you gotta
be willing to do it at that stage of the company. And then hopefully you get to the point where you've earned the right to hire someone to focus on that particular domain. Uh, one of the best moments of my, my life at Optimizely was when we hired our sales operations leader. And the, within the first week I, I said, here's all the commission calculations that you gotta run at the end of every month. I don't wanna do this anymore. Uh, and then the minute that he hired someone on his team, he passed it on to her, and <laughs> just that was the hot potato that no one actually wanted to wanted to work on. So yeah. it sounds like you kind of inherited a team. Yeah. When did you decide that? Well, first of all, did you need to make any changes, um, or was that the right team for you at the right time for you to move forward with your your vision as a VP, as that the only VP at the company? Yeah, I I was super fortunate in that in that particular team. We, it really was an all-star cast even before I started, and it's a huge debt of gratitude to the folks that were there before I joined. You know, there were definitely a few that um, we, there was a, a period of time where I was trying to get my arms around what the core competencies of everyone was. And there were definitely, as the company grew, there's only so much that people can evolve with a company that's really scaling fast. Right. So we went from seven million one year to 21 million the year after that, to almost 50 million the year after that. And then we went from 28 million from Benchmark Series A to 56 million and uh, Dreesen Series B. And the level of expectations then that come with those, there's this expectation that um, you need certain experience to carry you through that that's um, wave of growth and a lot of times that wave moves faster than anyone's individual ability to paddle into it and to surf it myself included mm -hmm. um, I one of the things that I'm proud about is I remember when I first started Optimizely one of the people on my team said hey you know that the average tenure for someone like you is 18 months <laughs> and it's it's true the math would suggest that for a you know, Series A, Series B, VP of Sales, it's a pretty short tenure, which is a little uh, pressure creating, shall we say. And so for me to have survived five years is in a way a, a badge of pride because it, you're forced to reinvent yourself almost every quarter right. to, uh, to stay on that wave. And there are some people that surfed that wave and some people that surfed it part of the way and then the company needed someone with experience that they cannot manufacture. Uh, there's there's no substitute for for time, and uh, that was what became a challenge for me. Was you have people who are super high potential, super motivated, but maybe are earlier in their career, and to have that conversation of hey, the reason why we're going to be bringing in someone more senior that you're now going to work for instead of working for me is is these reasons and. I always try to give the context. They may not agree with it, but hope they respect the rationale that led to that decision. Um, so to answer your question, it, we did. I didn't. There wasn't any turnaround job per se, but as the company grew, you have to continually evaluate the talent, especially of your leaders, mm -hmm. and look at not just how they're performing today, but what's their capacity to reinvent themselves for the next wave of growth and also have a conversation about if they want it. Because there's clearly also an energy that people have that are good for that zero to one when it's small and fun and everyone's wearing a bunch of hats. 
and there's this inevitable gravity that takes over when a company becomes bigger, that you're not going to be having the same scope of ownership. You're going to be focused more in um, agency partnerships when you used to be focused in partnerships, when you used to be focused in partnerships and in selling the customers. Like that narrows over time as the company gets bigger right. and there's more uh, framework and infrastructure and the negative word for that is process and some people uh, feel feel trapped by that and so you have to have that conversation too it's not just about whether you're good or not good at doing this job in the definition that it is now but do you even want to because the vibe is different and that's okay if, if you don't we got to find the right combination of what you're good at what you like doing and what has an impact on the company so you mentioned the the negative word process I'd love to hear more about why you kind of qualified it as a negative word <laughs> well, uh, anyone that knows me knows at least I attempt to be precise with language. There's a lot of connotation wrapped up. Words matter, and we have a lot of them, at least in our in our native language. I'm learning German, uh, and there's okay. so now I have a, even more <laughs> words to learn and mess up. But what's um, the motivation for that? Uh, mostly personal. I want to avoid my new son learning a language with his mom uh, that they can plot against me. Uh, okay. with because my wife's from Germany okay. so uh, yeah and it's it's fun actually to have a non non work pursuit that still is tickling the brain you know something that's not tech related or yeah. related to your job I, I like having that too yeah uh, but anyway so back back to your question um, clearly it's almost very similar to sales right when people people have a connotation that they link to the word sales there's even a visual that is created for a lot of people around sales and I think process has, in a lot of ways, that same connotation. It, it has this feeling of control and of uniformity and of, and if you carry it to its conclusion, almost a dehumanization. You're part of a process. You're not a human. You're stamping this widget as it goes down the line. And we used to talk a lot about this at Optimizely. Like a lead is not a record in Salesforce or a row in a spreadsheet that becomes an opportunity. <laughs> It's a human working at a company that's trying to get their job done and trying to improve that. If we treat people like records in Salesforce or like rows in a spreadsheet to follow the process, then we're actually going to be in a disadvantage because we're not engaging at that human level. And so I do think that when people hear process, they think, oh, great, that's, that's the bureaucracy taking root. That means we're not as, we're not as nimble anymore. We're not as uh, as carefree, and the you know, the suits are here, so to speak. And so I, I I tried consciously to minimize that word because if you look at underneath, what we really mean is we need a shared vocabulary for how we're going to get stuff done. Mm -hmm. If there is no clear understanding of how we treat a prospect that becomes a buyer that becomes a customer if we don't all understand what what that flow is then we're all going to be smashing into each other there's going to be inefficiencies we will we will be less nimble because of that and so what i was always searching for with designing processes was really that shared vocabulary if we know that what is really critical is that we ask these three questions when we talk to a prospective buyer for the first time and if we call that our process, that's not a negative thing because if we get those the answers to those three questions, then we can move faster in figuring out are they the right fit for what we have to sell them or not. Mm -hmm. And um, 
so that maybe it's it's overdone, but I would try to use things like framework because framework to me indicates infrastructure or uh, or that shared vocabulary that we can use to get stuff done. And process has that connotation of bureaucracy and control and uh, uniformity. So I feel like this is unusual for someone in your position. It is, yeah. How, yeah which how... is either great for me or horrible because uh, I don't, my mind doesn't work maybe more like a traditional sales leader. Uh, and in some situations I think and hope that that's useful. I'm still mostly gainfully employed, so it seems like it resonates, but in, in other ways, you know, like none of us are perfect at every discipline for the role that we have, but um, I feel like this orientation towards towards process is useful, especially when you need to orchestrate multiple people engaging with, with a, a customer or a buyer because that's where the accidents can happen, right? Or those intersections between between people or between departments. Yeah, yeah. it's fascinating to me. I mean, so when, was there like a point in your career when you were like, okay, we really need to pay attention to the vocabulary we use? We well, really need to be more precise. I, or were you always just kind of like that? <laughs> <laughs> well, now, now you gotta, as part of the podcast, call my parents and, and see what the story <laughs> is. I don't know, I, I guess it would start from, my, my career started in engineering. So I was a Oracle 8i DBA, if anyone's still looking for a PL SQL knowledge and expertise, give me a call. Um, yeah, tell, I worked tell on. Tell us more about that. I mean, yeah. I know what that is, but yeah, yeah. So I was. Um, well, I I majored in information systems, is what it was called at the time, and it was this nice combination of computer science and business. And for me, that was a that in my seventeen year old brain, that was the right thing for me to do because I didn't want to sit in front of a terminal hacking code all day. Yeah. But I but I also. Um, you know, the general disciplines in business were not as interesting to me. So I liked that combination. And uh, then information systems that are leading into being, were being working, ironically, where I should have majored in computer science so I, to be a developer, I kind of half, half-assed it. And I ended up being a job developer and, and Oracle DBA working at Chevron of all places, and hmm. um, which you would, the first connotation you have, of course, is the gas stations, but underneath that, like almost any company, there's huge technology infrastructure and spend right. for building applications and running the business. And so I had worked on projects. We had, uh, at the time, these were these wild websites that people could log into, and this was like this revelation for a gas station owner to actually go to an internet browser <laughs> and log in, and they could see all their invoices, they could see all their fuel transfer notices, and they could order toy cars and do all this kind of super cool stuff, uh, okay. which in 2001 was was a bit revolutionary. Um, and the reason why I, I talk to that a bit is I think that's where some of that process orientation comes from, because you gotta break down any business problem into its, uh, into its data parts, right? Into the tables and the relationships between the tables. And if you, you build an application, you have to think about not just the data model, but the interaction model. What's the flow of how somebody interacts with the site and gets data into or out of the system? And, and I think that, for me, sealed some uh, mentality towards breaking a problem down into its constituent parts. So any, any um, engagement, whether that's someone logging into a website and looking stuff up, 
or it's a, a human having a conversation and going through a demo of a product, I, I would try to break that down into its data model. I still think and even draw in relational database terms and then what's the process flow or workflow on top of that. Where that, to me that really crystallized and to answer the second part about words mattering was as a solutions engineer so or sales engineer depending on what the what the company calls it but doing that at Salesforce in particular what I found was the more that I the more thought I put towards tailoring the same exact feature but through the vocabulary of that prospect the more that I used their the names of their salespeople, the names of the key attributes that they wanted to track in their forecast, the right. more that I, I personalized that message from the same exact thing that we would show to every prospect, the better I felt I was doing at my job, the more I felt like the deals that I was working on were winning, the better reputation I had with my AE counterparts, and so every one of those engagements was figuring out how do I take this core thing, this feature, and tailor it in a way with vocabulary that would resonate for that particular buyer. And I can remember very, very clearly working on efforts with key deals where every single thing, and I also am perhaps a bit obsessive about this, but I would even think down to the way that the data looked in one dashboard component on this fake dashboard that they may or may not even look at. But I wanted to be ready that if they were gonna look at it, I had a story to tell and it was linked to the narrative that I was trying to take them through in the demo. So doing that as an individual contributor, I think then informed this maybe core principle that everybody has a different way that they receive messages and language and the onus is on the deliverer of that message to find out the way that's gonna resonate with them. I mean, to me, this is actually a mark of a great manager is someone who chameleons themselves to what that individual on their team needs to maximize their potential. Because everyone's motivated in a different way. And you can't just say like, well, this is the way I'm gonna do it. And everyone needs to mold to me. That may be, that's leadership qualities for me. That's a whole different domain. I think there's a difference between management and leadership. Mm -hmm. But to be a great people manager, it's about tailoring that message in a way that's going to resonate with that individual that that works on your team so that you can drive them to maximize their potential okay yeah well this might be a good part to you know point to ask how did you kind of define your values and and how did you create an organization that you really cared about yeah well i perhaps cheated a bit in okay. that a company has to start with values and I, I've always felt I've had some energy for innovating inside of the domain or the function that I've chosen, but I, I've never had the desire to start something literally from scratch. And I think that's a, um, I, the level of respect I have for entrepreneurs and uh, also the, the recognition of the insanity that's required to, to do that and the, and the optimism that has to come from building something from nothing is, is just, uh, I'm always overwhelmed by that. So in any any place that I've been, there's already been an effort to define the values of the company. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't have joined a place if the definition of those values weren't something that 
was at least the starting point that resonated with me. Um, and so let's take Optimizely for example. We had, and, and Dan and, and Pete as the founders and probably even the, the early team had worked on this concept of Optify before I had even joined uh, at, at 30 people. What I, I find really interesting, I think most companies now get it that you have to have values and you have to define them. And on the surface, those words, no one can argue with the words like you know, ownership and passion and trust and, and fearlessness and so forth. Like everyone has those words, but if the words aren't defined well inside the company, this is what we mean by fearlessness. This is what we mean by ownership. This is how we're going to um, make them not just words on a f cool poster on the wall, but words that we're going to run the business by then the values don't really matter. They could be any cool words th that you want. And I really, I, I thought that Dan and Pete from the, from the get-go not just went out and defined, hey, this is, these are the values of the company, but this is how we're going to, uh, to take action from them. This is how we're gonna use them to root them into the, the core of decision-making at the company so that they're, and, and try to actually not leave them open for interpretation. Because everyone can bend one of those words for their own purposes, even sure. maliciously, right? So we had transparency as one. And you'd get these questions at our weekly company all hands of wielding transparency as a torch. Like, you're not being transparent because you didn't share why this person was let go from the company. And transparency doesn't mean that everybody knows everything about everything because there's no way that the company <laughs> sure. can operate in that way. So you have to try to define, this is what we mean by transparency. These are the things that are important. These are the potential side effects of it to try to give people more context to why that value is one of the six that we picked. Yeah. Um, so that's at the company level. And then I, I do think every leader has a responsibility to then riff on that and to create values for their team that are a reflection of, of their own beliefs and, and personal value system. And I think for me, I try to keep it pretty simple, but uh, you know, my general feeling is whatever you've picked to do as your thing professionally, I hope that the reason that you picked it is because you want to be fucking great at it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, why do it? <laughs> and I don't care what that is. Like you could pick, there's all manner of things that you could deploy brain power to. You've picked this thing, and if it's your thing, then the joy is in the mastery of the craft. And I, so it's still weird to me that sales is my thing. That's not the, that's not what I had set out to do. I never had the, someone tell me, oh, you're so great at the candy bar, little league, uh, things that are sales that I would uh, frankly run away from. Um, and I never really thought of myself in that, but as I understood really the root of what the, the nobility and the craft of sales to me is when you understand the value of what you have to offer and you take the time because you're genuinely curious about the people and the organizations that you might offer that thing to and you see a match, then you're doing a favor uh, to them by, by selling to them because you believe that it's gonna make them better. Like that, There's nobility in that. that. Back to the point about definitions we were talking about earlier, people don't necessarily define sales in that way. They can define it very selfishly, very pushy, aggressive, transactional. Um, but I think under, underneath that, one, I, I hope that it's changing. Two, I, I don't think, I think we can reject conventional wisdom in that way. And the, the value for me then is whatever 
profession you've picked, be great at it, have passion for the things that are in your control to master the craft. And, and then more specifically in sales, it's that if you're doing it in the right way, then it's, then it's noble and there's nothing to be ashamed about or um, that to not think that it's on the same standing as other disciplines in the company. Like sales is no less intellectually challenging than engineering or product or marketing. It has a different connotation, but it doesn't have to be that way. And that, that for me, was what I tried to instill also in the team that we built. And, uh, and I, I hope that that's still what people feel about their time during, uh, during that chapter of the company. What is the role of culture in allowing the salesperson or you know, helping frame the way that the salesperson actually does his or her job? Well, so this is an area of big conflict. I, and I, I would admit to this, and I still, from time to time, wonder, am I miscast in the profession that I've chosen? Because I don't, I don't operate by simply closing the deal, making the number, making the commission, getting the the boat and all the <laughs> the material goods that come from that and i and i wonder is that because th there are a, all sorts of organizations that operate in that way that make their company successful right. and find a way to make the number right, right? um and so i, I still the, the jury is still out uh in if we take an alternative approach does this team perform better or worse because there's, there's the cold rationality of space when it comes to growth and, and startups. That you got to make the number. And my thing is, like, I believe that if we approach um, and care about culture and we care about values and we care about solving for the customer experience and the buying experience, the numbers come. And, in fact, they should come better and faster than if we were to be just solving for the numbers. I wouldn't... I, this is not an altruism. It, we're still all working to uh, grow a company, to, for the company to be financially successful, for us to be financially successful. So at, at some level, like it's not utopia. We gotta, gotta still make the number. Right. But the thing is, if we just focus on making the number at all costs, what do we give up by doing that? And does that does that actually uh, counterintuitively prevent us making the number in the long run. And especially, this is the beauty of SaaS and subscriptions, right? Is like, it doesn't matter if we close the first deal, if we haven't cared for the customer and set them up to be successful, to implement the product well, to use it over time, to renew and expand. The only way the math works in a SaaS business is not on new business, it's on expansion and renewal. Mm -hmm. That's where the magic of the economics of SaaS take over. And so I think that means that the the values of the sales organization can be more in line with their customers and prospects because the subscription model drives that. And that's something even seeing that at Salesforce firsthand, the message from Mark Benioff uh, all the way through the organization was there's nothing more important than the success of every customer. And as nice as that sounded, it, he was saying that from a rational economic perspective. Mm -hmm. And at the time we, we had serious churn problems because we weren't caring for the customer in the right way to keep them renewing and expanding their use of the product. Um, so to your point about culture, the reason why I do think this really deeply matters is that if 
we build that set of shared values. And to me, that's what culture is. Culture is, is the values that we all subscribe to, that we all hold each other accountable to and accountable our, to ourselves and how we perform every day. If there's a set of those that we believe in and at, inside that is uh, this respect for the customers because this is the, the, the way that we're gonna operate this business is not by getting more funding from VCs. It's by building a business where people want to buy and use and buy more of our stuff. Right. And so that has to be the root in, in the values is this is why we operate is to serve and provide value for this group of companies and people. And I, and I think if you, if you make that in the center, that then culture becomes a competitive advantage because of the talent that you can attract that want to operate in that way and want to stay at a company and not just move on to the new sexy thing. Mm -hmm. So being um, you know, more pragmatic, if I can have an AE who's not just here as long as he or she is making money, but they believe in the mission of the company and they get value and energy from working with their customers. And that means that they don't leave every one or two years, but they stay three to five years. Then my ability to outperform the number is radically improved because I don't have AE attrition. Right. And I don't have to, I don't have ramp time of constantly filling the leaky bucket of bringing new people into the organization. So I think a culture that binds people to a cause that's bigger than them and not and bigger than just come here, crush your number, make a bunch of money, will actually outperform in the long run because one, you, you bring the right kind of customers in in the first place, and two, you'll keep people in the organization that want to be here and aren't just doing it for surface reasons but are doing it from a deeper motivation. Okay. That's the hypothesis, but... Uh, it's it and it, it's hard. I mean, it's even kind of a joke to say hypothesis because it's not not a scientific experiment. In real world experiments are always messy. But right. I just I couldn't operate any other way too. I guess and so um, it it might be a bit of uh, um, you know tail wagging the dog. But I do it, the the people that I've gotten the most energy with working from have identified with that that value. Uh, yeah, value message or, or value framework. And, uh, and I think those are people that also, if you talk to their customers, that they would have a better opinion than of working with oh, salespeople sure. that aren't, don't share those values, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I have to ask, what was the biggest challenge that you ran into, uh, either at you know, Salesforce or Optimizely? There's so many that come to mind. That's the pause because okay. part of the 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 own masochism that comes in from signing up for doing these sorts of things, like joining small companies and yeah. trying to figure it out, it almost comes from a desire to have those challenges or right. just to suffer. Right. You know, there. I, I remember I went to a conference. Uh, had it was this um, Next World One to One Hundred conference, and they had a bunch of CEOs who had been really successful companies, all public companies, and it was meant as some wisdom and guidance for a bunch of very early startups to talk to these CEOs and, and learn from their experiences. And someone asked, did you ever feel like you were making it? 
when you were going through the process. You're this huge successful company, you're public, you ring the bell on the yeah. on the NYSE, and every one of them to a person was like, no, it sucked the whole time. It felt always like there was something broken. Yeah. And it, you've got to revel in that in a way, and and so the the reason why I, I don't I don't have one that emerges just as this was the this was the main thing, because it, it, there's just so many, and ironically, that's what you sign up for. You sign up because either you want to challenge yourself to see what you're made of, um, you want to be part of that struggle, and to be proud of going through that struggle and surviving through the other other end. Um, and there's also manner of reasons that I think people gravitate towards this line of work, right. but you know I would say actually if I did boil down a lot of the the smaller ones that come to mind um, into a larger principle, it's that we I feel like we had the most struggle when the company wasn't aligned around customers being the center of our universe and there are companies that grow from all all centricities right um, meaning there's engineering centric companies that mm. have such a great technology and they just uber focus on the technology and and then the customers come and then there's some that are sales driven everything is about growing and getting the number and we're going to find a way to grow through that way and I can't argue with with whatever technique, but I know that where I felt the most energized and where I felt like the company was operating at its maximum efficiency is when we had clarity around the companies that we cared the most about serving and more importantly, the people at those companies. In the early days of Optimizely, it was really easy to empathize with the customer because the customer was Dan. Like Dan always said, I built the tool that I wish I had on the Obama campaign so it's really easy to answer questions about should we build this thing or that thing because I would just ask myself what right. would I have wanted to use and of course over time you move past solving for one person right. or, or one use case and because we and I, I'm massively culpable for this is uh, I should have been and one of my lessons learned was really the champion for customers inside the company. I'm the closest to those customers. My team is the closest in concert with customer success. Like, the, the, Forget about it from a sales perspective. Just the go-to-market team were the people that every day were talking to potential customers and actual customers about what they loved and valued and hated about the product. Mm -hmm. And we should have been a much stronger steward of that feedback, not to do what they told us to do, but to understand them super deeply and then build stuff that they didn't even think was possible. And it, we, we really had um, a lot of growing pains when we lost our definition of that and recognizing that that's the whole reason why we existed as a company. We weren't a solution chasing a problem. Um, we weren't there to raise money from VCs. We weren't there to go public. We weren't there for the snacks and the and the and you know the beer and and cold brew on tap. I hope but, not. But we were there. Well, I mean, it's funny, right? Because you yeah. you have people that get get trapped in those externalities, and they define yeah. that as the value or the culture, and, and that's where the the fun comes from. But where I think the companies that really figure it out and outlive the nine out of ten startups that don't make it are the ones that obsess over that customer centricity and. Um, 
I think that's the biggest the biggest challenge now. If a bunch underneath that, but just losing our way and losing our momentum by not putting that at the the center of the universe. Okay. And so I'm gonna ask kind of a different question, but you know, a twist on the same question, but you know, different uh, different way of asking. Um, knowing what you know now, what would you have done differently? From the get-go, uh, defining as explicitly as possible our ambition about the companies that we cared to serve and the people that we were building capabilities for, mm -hmm. defining that as early as possible, uh, not as a team of executives with hooded robes and torches and come out with, with this white smoke and said like this, this is our yeah. ideal customer but yeah. um, engaging the entire company in in that conversation right. you know, like ultimately good ideas can and should come from anywhere it's it's the leader's responsibility to edit and prioritize those ideas right. um, and you know, we, we went through an exercise at Optimizely where we, we did, we tried to lay out our three-year ambition and as part of that, really be very explicit about our, the target companies that we, whether they were customers or not, some of them were actually uh, people we had no, companies we had no relationship with. But we, in fact, we named these logos and we said, if we are going to accomplish our ambition, it's being a, a essential partner to companies like State Farm and Nike hmm. and Best Buy and British Airways and so we, we ended up going through that exercise and yet that was the third year that I in, of my five-year tenure I would have it, it would and should have been part of the manifesto of even starting the company yeah. or at least as early as possible and the thing, thing is that can evolve right because the other thing it, it you every startup wants to take over the world eventually but there's an order of operations to it. You can't be all things to all people at once. And I right. think trying to define what those companies were that we cared about at that point in time was almost more important to say what the companies that we didn't care about at that point in time. Mm -hmm. So you have a really hard time to say no. When people are coming and they fill out the lead form and they look like a good company and they have money, of course you want to sell to them. It's really hard to say no. But the harder that we were explicit about, these are who we don't feel like we're ready to serve right now, Maybe over time, as we build more capabilities, we build more maturity in, in our organization, we have more implementation partners, whatever it is, we want to expand those concentric circles of the companies that we're here to serve. But we just weren't explicit about, this is who we're gonna nail right now, and we're gonna be maniacal about nailing them. And then when we feel like we've nailed that, then the next lily pad, we're gonna continue to expand uh, from there. And so I just want to make sure I heard this correctly. This is yeah. before you even necessarily had these these companies as customers. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, to me, I mean, I think it, it's it's part of the the thesis for starting a company. Yeah. Like you're not just building a product because it's cool or it's innovative technology. There are some. Don't get me wrong. There are some companies that are able to do that, but I, I think the success rate of those seems smaller than someone who has some sort of thesis of like. These are the people that we think we're building to drive value for them. This is why they're going to pay us money. This is why they're going to keep paying us money. This is why they're going to pay us more money over time yeah. so that we can build something that outlives us. Uh, and um, 
Yeah, and if I had had, look, I, me being the VP of sales at Optimizely was my first rodeo in, in a job of that scope of responsibility and, and of that um, uh, importance. And I think there's a thousand things that I would have done differently, but it, a lot of it is driven from the willingness to stand up in front of the company and say, uh, customers are what gonna drive us and we all from marketing from the moment they touch the brand to how they engage with humans considering whether to buy it to how they engage with humans to deploy it and use it and manage it to the product that we build from them and the people that write code for that product all of us have to be on the same page mm -hmm. around why we're building and who we're building for right yeah okay well, Travis, I feel like I've asked you a million questions. Um, I appreciate you uh, joining the, the show. You put a quarter in my neck and uh, <laughs> the cymbals start clapping and I could go on and <laughs> yeah. go on forever, yeah. Well, I mean, is there anything else that you necessarily wanted to talk about? Well, I think the topic is fascinating. I appreciate that you're um, putting this out into the universe, that there's, there's a lot of content for founders and um, there's a, a culture that's been built up here around supporting founders, as it should be. But um, you know, for people like myself that were cl clearly over my skis in the amount of expertise and experience that I needed to, to be successful in, in a senior leadership role at a company like that, I would have loved to have had a way to tap into experts. Um, and I did some of that ad hoc, and I'm really, really uh, very humbled by the ability to work with mentors, I think, for me. That was a, a early lesson that I learned that when it's it's lonely when you're the only person doing your job inside right. of a company and right. you can't turn to necessarily the people that work for you and and bear your heart and soul to them and so it's really important to have people outside the organization that you can um, you can do that your your work psychologists so to speak um, I just appreciate that your work is to try to create some some structure and support for people that are along for the ride as much as the founders are. Maybe they don't sweat it as much, but uh, I, I put my heart and soul into that time and I felt no less an owner of the company than, than I hope that, that Dan and Pete felt. Um, so it's, yeah, I guess it's more of a appreciation for doing something like this. and. For me, this is a way to, if it's useful, to pay it forward uh, because I know that there are people that invested in me like that. Yeah. Well, I, very kind of you. I appreciate that. Um, and I feel the same way. Um, so thank you. Cool. Well, thanks for having me.